Well, it's been a pleasure to have the guys lead us today, hasn't it? Yeah. For those of you that um, haven't been around for a few weeks because we've just come through some holidays and maybe you're a, a guest with us today and you don't know, but we have just launched a journey as of last week to go through the Bible. And so we are together in reading through the same plan. It's a chronological plan. And our purpose is to read beginning January 1 and by December 31 to have read the entire Bible. And we'll do so chronologically. And if you want to join us in that journey, it's not too late. We'd love for you to to get in on it if you haven't already. Uh, We have reading plans that are on the table out in the lobby that will show you what we're reading every day. It takes about 15 minutes a day to do the reading. Some of you have already commented to me. You're surprised um, at how quickly the reading can happen. And so I'm glad that you're finding it encouraging like that already. Uh, Let me just add one word of uh, caution to you. And that is this. We are on a reading journey. This is not a study journey. And uh, there's a lot of value to studying the Bible. We advocate that around here all the time. But if you try to add study to this reading, you will get bogged down. And so let me encourage you to keep it a reading journey. You want to get exposed to the material of the scriptures so that when the year is said and done, you will have been exposed to all of the scripture. Now, along the way, you're going to be interested, you're going to be intrigued, you're going to have questions pop up, you're going to want to study, and that's great. And I would say do some study, just do it aside from your reading time, because if you bog down your reading time, you'll get discouraged and you might uh, drop out along the way, and we don't want you to do that. Uh, So get your favorite Bible, get hold of our reading plan, follow along. If you want the chronological Bible that some have purchased, you can get that at Amazon or Uh, Barnes and Nobles or wherever else uh, they sell books. And uh, we have a number of tools for you on our website. And we'd encourage you to go there. There's some articles that you can look at. Uh, There's an online uh, Bible study opportunity for you, etc. So, thanks for the journey together. As we are in these beginnings, starting with Genesis, last week we uh, were reminded how great God is. By his work of creation. And this week, we are being introduced to a God who not only creates, but who pursues, seeks to have a relationship with us, and does so by establishing a covenant with us. Now, when we start talking about covenantal language, that's not language that you hear around all the time. And so we're going to take a minute to unpack that and to think about that. Uh, First of all, what are we talking about when we say the word covenant? It is a binding commitment by one party to another party that features various promises and various conditions. Now, I know that's rather cold and stale. We're going to unpack a little bit more along the way. But in its essence, that's what we're talking about with a covenant. And it's usually accompanied by signs. Evidences, indicators that you are in a covenant. Uh, Signs turn out to be memorials that remind the parties of the uh, covenant or the commitment that they're in. 
Now, the experience that is most common today that fits that definition, that connotation, that picture of covenant is marriage. That is the best picture that we have today of what the Bible's trying to get at with this idea of having a covenantal relationship with God. As a matter of fact, God purposed that marriage would be a primary illustrator, if you will, of the kind of relationship that people can have with God. Now, let's be sure and be clear what we're talking about with marriage, because our culture has taken the notion of marriage and has turned it and twisted it and it's upside down and skewed and it's not what the Bible uh, would describe and define a marriage to be. For example, in the first place, the Bible says God ordained marriage. This is God's idea. This is not humanity's idea. He came up with it. He has parameters for it. He has plans for it. He has goals and dreams for what will happen with marriage. And it behooves us, if we're going to take marriage seriously with respect to its intent, that we do marriage in keeping with who he is and what his plans are. Which also indicates to us that it is a commitment both to God as well as to my spouse. So this is not just an arrangement between two people. This is kind of a holy triangle, if you will, with you, your spouse, and God. It's his idea. It's his plan. It's his purposes that are around the whole deal. And he actually does some wooing and some drawing and some guiding and and some providing about who that mate should be. And my marital commitment covenantally is perpetual. It does not end. Through sickness and health, richer, poorer, only does death put an end to that covenantal relationship. And that's why the scriptures admonish whatever God has brought together, Catch the theology there. God did it. God ordained it. God planned for this union to take place. Whatever God has brought together, we are never to put apart. All of that serves, and this is a marriage sermon today. We could talk a long time about all the nuance of this, but all of this serves to paint a picture then of what relationship with God can be and needs to be like. It's a very significant Commitment of the heart forever. Now, in summary, the Bible states this covenantal relationship that you and I get to have with God this way. You'll find it across the pages of the scripture, but uh, Ezekiel 37, 27 encapsulates it well when it says, I will be their God. They will be my people. Now, I cannot overstate the, the importance of you capturing uh, this notion and uh, this idea of what God is up to with having a covenantal relationship with us. I can't overstate it because we're picking it up here early in Genesis, and it will be throughout the Bible a dominant theme. You will see it popping up all the time. And there's also the reverse side to it, where you get to a book like Hosea, 
And God does something peculiar with Hosea and says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. Because that marriage is going to picture my relationship with Israel right now. They are so unfaithful, so adulterous toward me. And so I want you to, uh, to demonstrate that through your marriage of how unfaithful my people are to me. And as you may recall, Hosea began to have children with his wife, Gomer. And each of them had specific names that had great significance with respect to the relationship of God's people to God at that point in history. So when he has his third child, God says to Hosea, call his name Loami or not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Hosea 1.9. So if you don't capture here in these early chapters of Genesis the significance of having a covenantal relationship with God, how God is all about having a covenantal relationship with us, and so much of the history and the detailing of what's going on in the lives of the people of God throughout all the generations and the centuries, you know, waning to and, and, and fro in this commitment to God, lack of commitment, faithfulness to God, lack of faithfulness to God, then you're going to miss a lot of the... Uh, the drama of what's going on and, and why God is doing what God is doing with his people. He wants us to be his people. He invites us to be his people. He has created this avenue for us to have relationship with him. And we have these proclivities that take us away from that all the time. That's a summary statement. Now, there are multiple covenants that are described in the Bible. Many, many covenants between people. Probably one of the best known is between David and Jonathan. They had a covenant with one another. I don't have time to talk about it today. When we get to that portion of the scripture and the reading, we'll talk about it. So there's all kinds of covenants that go on between people. But there's also a variety of covenants that have happened throughout history between God and humanity. Let's just take a quick survey. The first one would be what we would call the Edenic Covenant. You just got the reading about that this past week. The covenant that he established with humanity in the Garden of Eden. And basically, it involved this. You get to be in paradise. You get to be over all of my creation. Uh, you get to rule like I rule. You're in my image. There's only one stipulation that you not eat fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And, of course, they did. And thus the fall and the breaking of that uh, early covenant that happened with humanity. Uh, that leads us to the next one that uh, you did some reading about, the Noahic covenant, where as humanity continues to progress, and we don't know how many years that is, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, but as humanity continues to progress and to grow and evolve or whatever, sinfulness becomes more pervasive. It becomes more grievous to God. It becomes uh, more disgusting to God. And he comes to a point where he decides he's going to have to exert some judgment. And you'll recall that uh, he saves Noah and Noah's family only from this cataclysmic flood that's all-encompassing. And it's, it's a disastrous kind of thing. But in the aftermath of that, 
God makes a covenant with humanity. He says, I won't do that again. And I will give you a sign that will show you I will not do that again. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. And then uh, as you get into the readings this week, you'll be introduced to the Abrahamic covenant. And this is this is the main deal from which we still are uh, benefiting from what God is purposing to do with humanity today. And so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible and we're going to be looking at Genesis 12. Uh, You'll also want to find near the end of the Bible, the book of Hebrews, because then we're going to flip over and we're going to look at Hebrews chapter eight. So Genesis 12. And then Hebrews eight. Now, in Hebrews 12, we're introduced to the whole covenant idea that God's going to establish and make a people for himself. And he does this with a guy by the name of Abram, who is living in an area called Haran, which is north of what we have come to call Israel. Now, the Lord said to Abram, verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, that's just the opening introductory piece to the covenant that God's going to establish Not just with Abraham, but all those who are descendants of Abraham. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I'm going to bless you and I'm going to make you a blessing to others. And those who curse you or oppose you or seek to uh, do harm to you, I will oppose them. And I will be standing with you against your enemies. Now, turn a few pages over. To chapter 17, when we get into more of uh, the details. Verse 1. So when Abram was 99, previously we were looking at 75. There's a few years that have gone on since God initially said, let's enter into a covenant relationship. How hard do you think those few years were? How disillusioning, how questioning. God says he's going to do certain things and these things haven't happened yet. Twenty five years. And then he gets another word. So when Abram was ninety nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant Between me and you and your offspring after you 
throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So there you have it, more of what is found in the covenant between Abraham and God, and thus all the descendants of Abraham and God in the years that are to come. Now, there are other nuances that begin to take place with this covenant that we get exposed to through the succeeding generations. You're going to be reading about these in the coming weeks. The next one being the Mosaic covenant. Now, this is um, 600 years from the time of Abraham. 600 years by the time we get to Moses. Okay, so it's not like, you know, and next month God began to speak to Moses. This is this is way down the historical line. And they have been in bondage and slavery to Egypt. Another whole story. Um, We'll get into some of that later. But God hears their cries out of their slavery and out of their toil and out of their oppression. And the, the verse that we're going to read when we get into those chapters is that God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And therefore calls Moses to set his people free. The people are delivered from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea miraculously and they make their way to Mount Sinai. And there at Mount Sinai, God further defines the covenantal relationship, right? Ten Commandments, uh, the Decalogue are the primary statement of that, but then you keep on reading and there's law after law after law after law after law. And then you get into Leviticus and you start pulling your hair out because there are so many laws. We'll have fun when we get there. Then we get into the Davidic covenant. Moves all the way down to the time of David, which is another 400 years. And there, he says, it's going to be through the descendancy, through the lineage of David, that there will be a king on the throne perpetually, forever. And, of course, that's going to be Jesus. Now, what we are to understand is that all of these movements of God toward us in this old covenant, we sometimes call it the Old Testament, have been foreshadowing, preparing kinds of movements of God for what will be in the new covenant that is found in Jesus. And that new covenant is not only established and ratified, paid for in the life and sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, but then is handed to the church and everything that God was up to with Jesus, he is now up to with the church, all the covenant stuff that he started with Abraham and carried through with Moses and David are now fulfilled in Jesus and his church. So let's just take a quick look at that in Hebrews chapter eight. I hope you're staying with me as we uh, begin to we're going to look at one more passage here. Hebrews chapter 8, beginning with verse 8. 
we're told, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So what we just had unpacked for us uh, in those brief few verses, moving from an old covenant to a new covenant, which was monumental. I mean, I can't tell you what a big deal that was, but we have that all encapsulated in just a few thoughts. Namely, he has a new covenant with a new people. The people that are part of this new covenant are the true descendants of Abraham. The people that are part of this new covenant are the true Israel. And so when you start reading in the New Testament about sons of Abraham and about the true Israel, he's talking about followers of Jesus. He's talking about his church. And this covenant, unlike the old that had been written on tablets of stone, are now written on the heart. The old covenant, which had been external, has been replaced by a new covenant that is internal. You see that in there? And then he says, in the old covenant, there were a select group of people that got to know me in a personal kind of way, some priests, some prophets, but not so with the new covenant. With the new covenant, everyone gets to know me in a personal kind of way. Nobody has to say, here, let me teach you and show you about the way of the Lord you will have that internally unpacking and stirring within you. And sins will be forgiven. Now, why is that? Because this covenant has a superior mediator to the old covenant. The old covenant had priests who would bring an animal to the altar and sacrifice it. For the atoning and the forgiveness of sins. But the new priest, the new mediator, Jesus, is superior to the old ones in that he himself has become the once and for all sacrifice. No more animals, no more altars, no more fires, no more burning things up. He's the once and for all sacrifice that atones for and pays for sin so that we can be forgiven. So that in our forgiven state, we can be justified. So that we can have relationship with a holy God when we were not a holy people. I can't overstate how big that is. Now, all of these covenantal expressions had signs that go with them. To give indication that a covenant relationship was being engaged and being enjoyed. Now, all of this is pictured 
in marriage, right? Is there a covenantal sign in marriage? Yes. And that would be, yes, some of you are flashing your rings at me right now. Exactly. The wedding ring is a covenantal sign that you are in a relationship with one other in the ways that we just described at the beginning uh, in accordance with God's ordaining plans for you, according to his stipulations. It's perpetual. There's nothing that will end that relationship except your own death or the death of your spouse, etc., etc. So that's the sign that you are in that covenant. Now, does the sign actually make it so? No. The sign does not make you married, does not make it perpetual, does not keep it from ever ending, etc. It's just a sign. It's just a symbol of the relationship that you've entered into, not only with another person, but with God in marriage. And so it is with these other signs. They don't make it happen. They just indicate that God's at work in ways that it does happen. So, for example, when God says to Noah, I'm not going to destroy the world by flood again. And here's my sign. I will place a rainbow in the sky and you'll know that I'm good to my word. Now, the rainbow does not prevent a worldwide cataclysmic flood. Only God prevents that. The rainbow is a sign or an indicator that he's going to be good to his word. Same thing with Abraham's sign of the covenant. And you're going to get in there and you're going to begin to read this week about uh, these acts of circumcision that God's calling for the males that are part of the Jewish community to conduct. And you go, why, why, why? Because it's a sign, it's an indicator, it's like a wedding band that says they are in covenant with God. It doesn't make the covenant, God makes the covenant. It's just an indicator. The same thing with Moses and the giving of the law and the whole sacrificial system that's uh, you know, initiated with that. Uh, all of those were indicators. All those were signs of the kind of relationship that people were having with God. And they were all foreshadowing the ultimate that would come through Jesus. So that when Jesus comes on the scene does a final ratification of this whole covenantal expression of God with people, there's a sign that those who are following Jesus, and by following Jesus, entering into covenant with God, bear, and that sign is baptism. The baptism doesn't do the saving. The baptism doesn't do the regenerating. The baptism doesn't do the forgiveness. It is not uh, a bestowal of God's grace. God just gives grace. It's a sign that these things have happened. And then when we enter into covenant with God and with God's people called church, there's a sign. You remember what Jesus said that sign would be? He said that this is how the world will know that you're my people, that you're in covenant with God. I'm doing a regenerating work in you. And that is you will love one another by the way that you love one another. Everybody will know. When we get into later New Testament passages and we start unpacking that mandate to love one another, what's that look like to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to do journey in life with one another, to pray for one another when we sin and when we fall, to restore one another when we've taken a wrong turn. You see, this is why, friends, we have covenantal church membership. 
That's not what saves you. That's not what reconciles you to God. That's not what makes you uh, going to heaven someday when you die. It is a way that you carry out the covenant that you have with God. That covenantally, you're committed to one another to do the journey of life with one another as we are together in covenant with God. And he uses all of that to transform our lives, to make us suitable to dwell with him forever in the afterlife, a place called heaven. All right. What about all that? How do you deal with that? How do you respond to that? Here's what the Bible says you do. The Bible says with respect to this offer that God gives us to have covenantal relationship with him, to appropriate the atoning, saving work of Jesus into our lives. He's, the Bible says this is what you do. You repent and you believe. And repent means you stop doing one thing and start doing another. What's the other? Believe. You stop doing life as if there is no God. And you start doing life with God. So at least a couple of questions. Do you believe? Do you believe that God invites you into relationship? That's not a throwaway question. Churches are filled with religious people doing religious things with religious hopes about how it all turn out in the end. And they never, ever have relationship with God. Do you believe that he is inviting us, that he desires, that he purposes and plans for actually to have a relationship with him? One person to another person. Do you believe that sin prevents that relationship? And only Jesus can forgive and reconcile us into that relationship. This is the core of the Bible. He loves us, he pursues us, he desires relationship with us, and he provides for that to happen through an atoning work. Do you believe that God has established a covenant community called church? Now, we're not talking about the building down on the corner, or this building. We're not talking about cathedrals and massive, you know, edifices. We're talking about a people of every ethnicity, every tribe, every tongue around the globe. He creates a community that's in covenant with him and with one another, and it's called church. Do you believe that? And do you believe that a call to covenant with God is a call to covenant with his church? Now, if you don't already believe all these things, I don't expect that you will in 60 seconds of my asking these questions. What I'm merely taking a yellow highlighter to 
is that these are the issues that the scriptures are going to address, that are going to call for, that will invite us to, and that you will see example after example after example after example of people who bought into it and people who didn't. And what happened to the people who bought into it and what happened to the people who didn't. That's, that's where we're headed these next 50 weeks. So it just may be that already, this quick, God's done a little stirring in you so that you are beginning to believe. He's, he's birthing a little faith in you right now so that you're beginning to believe. Let me pray for you. So, Father, for my friend that is not yet believing, I pray for your continued pursuit of his heart and her heart. The Lord, for the friend that is beginning to believe right now, I pray that the presence of your spirit would grab hold of their heart and their mind. And you would bring that belief into fullness. Give grace and strength to take steps toward you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, I just got through praying for you. We're committed to continue to pray, to ask God to do things on your behalf. So you have that little connection card on the back side of that if you want to say, Scott, I am praying for belief. I am praying that I'll come to faith. Pray for me about that. We will. Or maybe you're new in faith and you need God to do something for you about that. We'll pray for you. Maybe you're taking steps of obedience. Pray for me about this step. We'll pray for you. Or maybe you're like the guy Jesus met one day who said, I want to believe, help my unbelief. We'll pray for you about that. Just be honest and open. This is also when we worship with our tithes and our offerings. If you're a part of this church, that's a way that you express your heart to the Lord. So our ushers will come and receive our connection cards and our gifts. Father, we dedicate these things to you, to your glory, in Jesus' name.